Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined as always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How you doing, Adam? Uh, doing great, Jerry. Definitely kind of in like a growth mindset a growth mindset you know last episode you were in a hero mindset now you're in a growth mindset i i feel like we're breaking out the uh the emotion wheel and you're just giving it kind of a roulette spin for every episode <laughs> dang well, dang you you're on to me I'm on. <laughs> i figured you out i figured you out well i like the growth mindset it is very appropriate uh for our episode and our guest that we have on today. I'm very excited uh, to introduce uh, Dr. Jennifer Serlin. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Oh, well, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And Adam, I'm thrilled to hear that you're in a growth mindset. It's <laughs> today. Perfect. Uh, well, uh, Jen, you are a performance, sport, and counseling psychologist, uh, which our listeners may be scratching their head a bit thinking, you know, what's that have to do with finance? But it's actually uh, someone we we really refer a lot of our students out to to kind of help with uh, test anxiety. And we wanted to invite you on to the podcast and kind of get a little bit of a inside look at what, what kind of performance psychology is all about. It, yeah, you know, I end up working with a lot of people who are preparing for different types of professional exams, in addition to different professional issues. And of course, in my general psychotherapy practice, just everything. But even in that, I do specialize in anxiety. And so performance anxiety is really something I, I enjoy working with. And there's so much that people can do to help manage it. But it really is attending to that and knowing those tools and how to apply them. And it's, I find sometimes it's hard for people to do that when they're working to learn so much material that it feels like, no, I need to just focus on this when really <laughs> taking that time to attend to the performance aspect and the psychological can make such a profound difference in how they do perform and make the process a bit less painful. Yeah, because it is a, a huge issue with the, the CFP exam. You know, we work with students dealing with, you know, time management anxiety, you know, obviously performance anxiety, uh, you know, inadequacies, you know, they feel like, oh, I'm never going to learn this. I'm not smart enough for this. Um, you know, the list goes on and on of these kind of mental hurdles that we have to get over in order to be successful uh, with this exam. And I joke with my students, you know, by the end of the exam cycle, I, I turn into more of a therapist than a teacher. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's a joke for me. But I honestly think it, it would really benefit a vast majority of our students to actually seek out, you know, professional uh, therapy in this regard and, you know, kind of employ someone with, with your skills to really get into the, uh, you know, the nitty gritties of, of you know, working through some of these uh, these mental roadblocks. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I do think getting over that hurdle, and sometimes when people think of a psychologist, even a performance psychologist, it they feel like something really needs to be wrong mm -hmm. versus so much of what I do, particularly as a coach and in the domain of performance, it's about getting from good to great. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem. And so really helping people shift their mindset. And I do feel like it's happening to an extent but like anything, it's a slow transition. Yep, definitely, definitely. 
Uh, well, just kind of giving our, our listeners some some background about uh, yourself. You know, I was looking over your website and I noticed that you kind of cater to two main groups. It seems like you you focus on athletes and then business executives. And I was kind of wondering, how's that Venn diagram look? You know, is there a lot of overlap between those or do you kind of take them as two separate camps or, you know, what what's kind of the, the mindset of your professional athlete versus your CEO? <laughs> There is tremendous overlap between the two. You know, certainly they're, you know, driven, focused, competitive, committed, hardworking. You know, they're really that hard driving. However, there are some key differences and both of them relate to coaching. And so when I'm working with athletes and many of them, I'm working with them who are transitioning or transitioned to their next career that they have sometimes from the time they were toddlers, they've had a coach. Mm -hmm. And so they are very used to the process and they know that, okay, having a coach is about getting me from good to great and let me address this. And so when I come up with suggestions, you know, they're, they're there, they're going to essentially do their homework. Executives or physicians, whatever it is, uh, financial advisors have not necessarily had that experience. And so there is a bit of a learning curve for them and developing how does this relationship work and trusting this process to get me to where I want to be. So I don't necessarily expect them to have done their homework per se. Um, and then it's kind of this process of, okay, how do I get in there to, to acclimate them to this process so they can get the most from it? Yeah. Cause uh, I mean, especially with financial advisors, I feel it's a very self-starter type industry, you know, either, start your own RIA and you're hundred percent independent from the get-go, or even if you do work with one of the larger firms, a lot of the larger firms kind of, you know, cast you to the wind and say, go get your clients, come to us when you need like compliance paperwork figured out. Other than that, don't talk to us. So there definitely is not a lot of coaching going on from kind of established uh, financial advising practices. Yes. And I do find, and this is a big generalization, but you know, I've worked with some advisors and finance teams. And, you know, there is that bit more of a focus on the hard skills because they work in numbers. And so then attending to the soft skills and the value of the soft skills <laughs> is part of that. No, this is part of the whole package. Um, and then there's one other key difference that I find with the executives and the athletes is that we look at athletes and we think, oh my goodness, they are so disciplined. And they are, I mean, you know, their body is their tool. And so they are, you know, what they eat, when they go to sleep, all of these things are really well regulated. But then when they make that transition into the professional world, they've had a coach all of their lives. I mean, they've been told when they get up, when they go to bed. And so needing to suddenly do this for themselves is a big transition versus the people who have come up through the professional non-athletic world. They've developed those skills generally along the way to get to where they're at. Very, very interesting stuff. I, I feel like as you're talking through this, Jen, uh, I'm a big basketball fan. My whole family plays hoops. We love hoops. And there's all these little stories and moments that are flashing through my mind of, of people that, you know, are now on a pedestal like uh, Kobe Bryant's of the world or, you know, Chris Paul and these moments they had where they, they seem to collapse um, under the, under the pressure. And um, I'm wondering just about performance anxiety uh, generally, you know, what is that? And 
I've always heard and read that there's an optimal level of anxiety um, that is actually beneficial. When does that start crossing that line into a place where performance anxiety is detrimental? Yes, I love this question because performance anxiety is really both the key and the kryptonite to peak performance. And so it's that aspect of if we don't have any, we underperform that it is what creates our motivation, drive, focus. But if we have too much, it absolutely leads to paralysis. And so there is that sweet spot right in the middle. And I'm going to do uh, what not to do on a podcast, but I just think it's so important that I am going to try to describe a graph. And it is called Yerky Dodson Inverted U. I advise people that look to look it up, but it's quite basic, but it really is just foundational to understanding this and understanding how to manage it. And so on your y-axis, you have performance. And at the bottom zero, the top 10. On your x-axis, you have anxiety, pressure, activation, whatever you want to call it. And again, zero to 10. And you know, when you're at zero on anxiety, you're at zero on performance. When you're around five or so, on anxiety, that's when you're at peak performance. That's your zone of optimal performance and optimal activation. And so that's that 10 correlates with it. And then you go down this inverted U and you get to 10 again, and that's where you get zero in terms of performance. So, you know, I have worked with people who have severe test anxiety and I, I worked with this one woman and she was going in for her exam and she was really well prepared and, but she sat down and her mind went blank. She went to that nine or 10 and she actually, <laughs> she looked through the first few questions. She recognized nothing. And she almost got up to tell the um, uh, proctor person that she thought she had the wrong exam. And then she <laughs> realized, oh my goodness, I'm frozen. She realized what was happening. She used some tools to recalibrate. I'm happy to report that she passed. It was the right exam. <laughs> but it can be that extreme. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. And, and to, how do you find the balance there? I mean, it seems like there's so much out of your control, right? You can, I mean, is it innate that, that you're, you're going to lean one way or the other on that inverted you, or is it the environment? I mean, how does that all come together to be realized with performance? Um, yes. Is that an answer? It's, <laughs> okay. it's kind of, it's, it's a universal experience mm -hmm. and what the triggers are, are unique to each person, but really that performance anxiety is a physiological, emotional, and cognitive process. And so it's that anxiety that your abilities, preparation, knowledge, skill set are insufficient to meet the performance demand at the time. And in order to effectively manage it, you really need to key into all of those variables and work to regulate them. And I generally really like to start with the physiological because what happens is, you know, we get that flood and that, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I, this is overwhelming. There's not enough time, all of those pieces. And those are the cognitions that come in to match what we're feeling. And so if we focus First, let's regulate the physiology, and then we can go after those narratives because oftentimes they're they're made up. Um, they're stories. Our minds create stories to fit what we're feeling, 
And so if we can change those, then we can get ourselves into that optimal zone, but we really need to work with both the cognition and the physiology and different Sounds ways. Like we need your help. <laughs> and, and, and different people to do it. So again, and you know, I mean, I, I don't just work with athletes, but I, I worked with an athlete transitioning to next career. And for this person, we figured out because they were, it was a career where they had to take a lot of credentialing and a lot of testing. And we used what we knew from what worked for them on the field to get into that optimal zone. And for them, it was having contact like sort of this physiological piece is what got them into the moment. And so we develop a strategy that included before every exam and in during breaks to do push-ups. And it was so effective that there was one later on where the only option was in a men's bathroom. Um, and you know, the last <laughs> thing he wanted to do was get down on this floor, but it was like, okay, I want to pass this. And so yeah. He did it. He did his 20 push-ups, <laughs> washed his hands well after, but it's figuring wow. out, okay, what works for each individual. Got it. Because it's such a complicated process. But once you know how to manage it and once you know what it is, it is manageable. That's uh that reminds me of uh the internet meme. I don't know uh, you know, if you've seen it, but it's like this very muscular guy. And the the there's some person goes, wow, how did you get so fit? And they goes, oh, it's easy. Every time I get stressed, I do one push up. <laughs> and then they're just like, <laughs> like a like a Greek uh, a Greek god, just muscle bound. <laughs> it just shows, yes, that's how stressed I am. <laughs> that is perfect, and I need that for my yes, office. <laughs> I'll see if I can uh, can find that meme for you. <laughs> yes. Oh, and one caveat, let me throw out there. Anytime that I talk about anyone who I've worked with. I've taken pains to make sure that their identity remains confidential. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very seriously. So change some key details. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, now, uh, something that, uh, you know, I think Adam and I can can both attest to as well is working with students. And I'm sure you've had this experience with uh, clients as well is do you ever just have clients or students who just kind of just seem really stuck in their negative mindsets? Like, just no matter what you do, you just can't seem to break through to them. Cause I I've had that many times over the years where it's almost like trying to help the helpless, you know, they, it's, they, they don't, they're stuck and it's almost like they don't want to improve because they're so stuck in their ways. How do you, how do you kind of address something like that? Yes. Um, and that does, that happens a lot and it's, it's such important data. Uh, cause it, you know, certainly tells us a lot about where they are and they don't know how to get out of it. And then sometimes, and I don't know if you've two have experienced this, but sometimes I'll catch it mm-hmm. and I'll start to feel the stuck, you know, what yeah. do I do with them? Um, and so that piece is then when I really need to bust out my skills to slow myself down and to use that as information and they might feel helpless, but I, I never see anyone as helpless. I believe we all have agency. And I often think of the work of Viktor Frankl, who became a, I believe, a psychiatrist, and he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor. Oh, yeah. I, I read his oh. uh, his book in uh, high school. It was our required okay, reading. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I think it gen- tends to be required reading. And yep. he tells a story, I'm pretty sure it's in that book, of you know one day he's, he's in a concentration camp and he's coming back from a work detail. And Everything has been taken from him. He's reduced to a tattoo on his arm. His family is gone. And he realizes in that moment that it's a beautiful spring day. 
And for him, that moment of, in spite of all these horrors, I can choose to notice that is a beautiful spring day mm-hmm. was this pivotal change point. And I will often tell people that story when they feel that way. And we will begin to focus on, okay, what can you choose to attend to? And where can you make the changes? And just that piece of even, I want you to choose to drive home a different way. I want you to, next time you sit down for a menu, I don't know if you found this or in these discussions, often when people are in that place, they go out to eat and they don't even know what they want to eat. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure, I think we've all been there at times. We're just flooded. And so choose, choose, and choose with the smaller things And that starts to build the momentum and break them out of the stuck. And another piece that I take with it, because often when people are in that place or when we're all in that place, the narrative becomes about, I'm so stuck. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have enough time. And what I want to do is externalize that you are not the problem. The problem is the problem. And so let's get you out of this stuck so that we can identify what is the real problem and how to get you moving so that we can address it. Yeah, definitely. Kind of reminds me of the, uh, you know, the quote, uh, you know, have the strength to change what you can and the courage to accept what you cannot. Uh, like that kind of really reminds me of that. Absolutely. And, you know, that you need that awareness and to really dive into it. And so I will often do a cost benefit analysis with people, you know, so what is the cost of staying stuck? Okay, they know that well, that's the point, pain point. But what's the benefit of staying stuck? Because mm-hmm. there's something they're getting from it. And often it's this defensive self-protective move, but it's mm-hmm. actually keeping them from where they want to get. But really having them sit with it, map it out, and then you can move to what are the benefits of change? And it just starts to, you know, it feels like they come in with this big block of cheddar and I help make it Swiss. So there's (laughs) possibilities. Let's break this up a little bit. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I just wanted to quickly share. um, So my wife is a a practicing psychotherapist. She has her her own practice. And uh, just recently I took my young girls to a rock climbing gym and, um, we had a, a blast. Like they all, it was so cool to see them kind of work through the process and get the courage to to scale and to fall and and know that it was going to be okay. And she shared with me that, uh, again, with confidentiality, that some of her clients um, that were struggling with with different big issues went to that same gym and that they had so much growth because they kind of fell in love with it and it just made me think that there's there, it's so immediate when you're trying to do that that you don't have time to ruminate on on anything other than <clears throat> I'm 20 feet in the air and I I need to figure out how to get to that next thing. Um, <laughs> but there's something that's amazingly therapeutic about it. I would imagine um, just the the immediacy of it to to pull you out of that out of that loop. It just reminded me of that your your story. Incredibly so. Yeah, that it pulls you into that present moment. And that's where we have agency. You know, the reality is, that's where our control lies. Mm -hmm. And how we choose to respond to what's going on around us in any given moment 
that's where it is. And so, yeah, something like rock climbing really brings that to the forefront. And in order to be successful, you need to be present and you need to be regulated. Because yeah. right, the minute you start thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to fall. <sighs> it's a setup. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of that um, management of anxiety, I'd imagine you have a large toolkit of strategies, but if you were to share with our financial professionals, many of whom are preparing to sit for a really big exam, uh, ways to effectively manage some of their stressors and performance anxiety, what would you share with them? Okay. And I'm going to try to try to hit the highlights because as you said, I... I really, I love doing this and there are so many things. Um, so one of the things in general and going back to that, you know, inverted you um, and what performance anxiety is, I do like to go after the mind and the body. And so going after both to try to get them better regulated. So first with anything is that awareness. What is going on for me doing that emotional self-check, that physiological self-check and then making decisions from there. I also think with a lot of this, it is it, thinking of it like a daily workout. Um, so the first thing I was going to suggest are breathing exercises. Now, often people will wait until they're in that high stress situation. And no, it is not going to work then. However, I mean, or maybe it will, but odds are it's you need to train your body to slow it down. I had the experience because I, I do practice what I preach or I do my best to. And, you know, years ago, my kids were little, I had some stressor at work. I don't even know what it is, was. And I came home and we got the kids to bed. And my husband said to me, you know, what, what's going on? What are you stressed about? And I was thinking, did he become psychic during the day? What happened? <laughs> how, how do you know I'm stressed? And he said, you're breathing. And I had conditioned my body so much to do this breathing when I was getting stressed, that it is now often my tip off that I am stressed. Hmm. And so I will hear myself doing these extended breaths and I think, oh, what is going on for me? And so I catch it a lot earlier. And so that's the value of the daily practice. So I do think any mindfulness practice there are so many good apps out there now. So if that's a fit for you and I encourage people to try it, often people say, I can't do mindfulness. My, I get distracted. Yes. Um, but that recognition that every time you're distracted and you bring your mind back to the present moment, bring yourself back into your body, that's the win. That's what we're training for. And so, you know, one of my favorite breathing techniques is called the four, seven, eight breath. And, you know, starting on the exhale and you inhale through your nose for the count of four, you hold for the count of seven, and then you exhale for, through your mouth for the count of eight. And you do it five times, ideally three to five times a day that you have scheduled again, away from the stressors because we're conditioning your body. And what it does is it helps activate your parasympathetic nervous system and it gets you out of that fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And then your body knows how to do it when the real stressors come. So it's a really powerful one. Some people will say that that gets me more anxious because um, they, you know, when we get activated, we tend to hyperventilate. And so the main thing with it is that longer exhale. And so maybe it's in for two, out for three. Okay, great. But 
It's a great strategy. And as with so many of these things, it is simple, but it is not easy. But it's part of that daily practice. Um, another, I'll give you one more physiological strategy, and it is creating a sort of a soothing kit for each of your five senses. So different times we need different things. And so, you know, when I'm working with people in high pressure situations, anyone who is taking a high pressure test like the CFP exam, they will be using this kit as they are studying and they will take it in with them. And it's, you know, something that you, for sight, sound, taste, smell, and hearing. And so it might be a song and they can sing it to themselves. You know, people immediately go to, I can't use it in the test situation. Let's find ways to. Um, having a picture that just soothes you a little bit, but these strategies really help with that physiological aspect. Then we get to the cognitive piece. Um, and so challenging those narratives that we develop because they do get catastrophic and fast and usually really negative. Um, we shame ourselves in ways, we talk to ourselves in ways that we would never talk to another person, particularly not someone we care about and who we want to succeed. And so I really try and have people implement a hard rule of you are not allowed to say anything to yourself that you would not say out loud to a loved one or a friend in a similar situation. And it is shockingly hard for people. And they start to then hear what they say to themselves because often we yeah. don't even realize it. It's yeah. kind of, you know, like music that's playing in a supermarket. And once they start to hear it, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, this is this is horrible. Why would I want to listen to this? Yeah. Um, so then changing it up. And so one of the really effective strategies is we all do self-talk. And so to talk out loud to yourself, often out loud really helps, particularly in high stress, high stakes situations, but to do it in the second or third person, because when we start to do that, okay, I've got this part of our brain kicks in and says, but do you, um, that, that anxiety, you know, are your skills, are your knowledge really up to part? Ah, and then you're back there. And so talk to yourself in that second or third person it really gives us some distance, it's far more effective and it is more like talking to a friend. And so it's that, okay, Jen, you've put in a lot of time, energy, effort, you know this material, you've got this. And it is just so much more beneficial. And I really advise practicing all of these skills in lower stakes situations. Don't just wait for the things that are more bring about the most pressure, you know, do it with the everyday activities. If you're late for an appointment or something, I mean, people will just shame themselves to no end. Okay. Grant yourself some grace, have a more productive conversation. If a friend showed up late, you won't be like, you're an idiot. I, or at least <laughs> I hope not. Um, <laughs> it happens, you know, don't worry about it. It, everything worked out. So that's incredibly important. And then one more thing I'll throw out there is particularly with that high stakes studying is when you are wrapping up, setting that boundary and giving your mind somewhere else to go. Because if you don't contain it, it kind of needs like crate training. Um, otherwise, this is this you know, out of control dog that's going to be jumping all over your furniture. And so it's time to like, okay, it's time to go in your crate. 
I am done for the day. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes just regular distraction can work great. But what I've generally seen to be the most effective is to do something like crossword, word search, Sudoku, Um, you know, you're all number people. And it's, it just sort of draws your attention. And then it's sort of this, okay, here's where I'm going to choose to put my energy in my mind. And then it's part of your wrap up to set the boundary. So that is something I found to be very effective. And that is something that I did every night when I was studying for my own licensure exam. These are fantastic. Thank you, Jen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now I'm wondering in, in your experience, uh, you know, working with all the clients you've worked with over the years, does do, you know, kind of these stressors, these outlooks on life, is it, is it more guided towards kind of, is it caused by external factors or is it just, you know, some people uh, just kind of internalize it? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, you know, do people get stressed because they're in stressful situations or do people get stressed because they are just inherently a stress prone individual? Oh, um, both. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's back to that piece of with performance anxiety being, you know, the key and the kryptonite that anxiety is really helpful. We need it. Mm -hmm. It gives us valuable information. However, what often happens is that we have that external stressor and then it gets amplified. And then, you know, we sort of, you know, blow through that four, five, six range on anxiety and we're up to eight, nine, 10 and we're paralyzed and that's an internal process. And so, I, uh, I really love William James, who is considered, you know, the father of American psychology. And I'm going to paraphrase him a bit, but he essentially said, my reality is what I agree to attend to. And so where do we regulate our attention? If we just focus on those external factors, it can just feel overwhelming versus, all right, what are my controllables and how do I control them? And so I will often have this graph where I'll have people identify, okay, what are my concerns and list them out. It's if they just stay in our head, they just go round and round. Okay. What can I actually influence and where's my control? And that control again is that internal world. And so putting your energy there is where you're actually going to get a return on your investment because if you just stay in that concern, you're just going to burn yourself out and you're going to be more exhausted and more vulnerable to that anxiety. And, you know, another piece that plays into this is that some research suggests that, you know, if we look at sort of our, our well-being uh, and as a pie, they call it the happiness pie, that about 50% seems to be determined set point genetic, but that only about 10% is life circumstances. And that 40% is our own volition, what we do. And that is a huge number. And so to really focus in on what can I do within this, because that with that external focus, people really get caught up in those myths of happiness that, you know, I'll be happy when I pass the exam. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't be happy until I'm a CFP. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is a setup right there. Yeah. Yeah. Always yeah. reaching, never getting. 
Uh-huh. Because as soon and as you get it, you move on to the next thing. <laughs> exactly. Our brains are terrible actually at estimating how much joy something will bring us and also how much pain something will bring us that initially, yes, when you pass that exam, it will feel great. And then you're going to go back to your baseline. Yep. So regardless of what's going on externally, work on that baseline. Okay. I like it. Me too. Um, there's, there's so much here. I wish I were taking notes. <laughs> um, I'm available. Just, no. <laughs> um, yeah, please. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there that are, are finding this just as fascinating and, and having so many moments where it rings true just in our day-to-day habits and how we navigate stressful situations. So this is just really, really wonderful. Um, I've, I'm very interested in uh, in the processes behind a lot of just different things. I like to know how things work, right? So uh, I find all this discussion around how the brain works and takes things from the outside and, you know, makes sense of it and how we act on it to be uh, just really riveting. And with our students, I've really taken a liking to just how do people learn? Like, what are the ways people learn and um, and how can they then use knowledge of the process to set themselves up for success. Are, are there any uh, research studies or, or strategies just about um, learning and retention and recall and application uh, that are either going to be worthwhile for our adult listener, listeners and learners to check out or to actually implement into their study regimen? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the first one I want to talk about is called the testing effect. And that one, and I, you know, sort of broken down into simplistic terms, but it talks about three phases of learning um, or knowledge acquisition, their performance. And so there's the phase of learning the materials, studying the materials, and then testing and retrieval of the materials. And many of us spend most of our time on that learning and studying and not as much time on that retrieval process. And when you think about it, I mean, the goal of the CFP exam, when you sit for it, it's ultimately not how much you know, but it's how much can you retrieve in that moment. And so, you know, because sometimes that studying place is more comfortable, not that it's so pleasant, but you can sit there with all the materials and I've gotten through this much. And the testing process, whether it's flashcards, taking a practice test, can be a bit painful because then you get feedback that you don't necessarily want. So then we avoid it. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And unfortunately (laughs) we need to spend more time on the retrieval and to build that into our system. And it's, you know, studies with it are really powerful in terms of its effect that if someone sits down and they study for, you know, four hours versus someone sits down, they study for two hours and spend two hours doing those flashcards or whatever it is, that material, 50% more retention. Um, I mean, and then you're getting that feedback, what you know, those areas of vulnerability that you need to spend more time on, and you can tailor it accordingly, but more than anything, it's going to lock it into your long-term memory much better. So 
that is something that I, I really advise everyone do. Um, and then, okay, I've got a couple things, more things I want to talk about. Uh, yeah, another ahead, one please. is the use of imagery. And this one is more that aspect of how do you get yourself into that peak performance zone? Because so often, you know, people are prepared, they know that material. And again, you know, like my person who went in and thought they had the wrong exam, um, you just get flooded. And so really taking time before you take it to um, use imagery with all of your senses, imagine what that day is going to be like, um, you know, what you're going to eat that morning, what you're going to wear. I actually, some people, and I've worked with a number of people who've done this, uh, they, they start wearing it for the practice test. Um, so they really know what it feels like, but you know, driving there, how you're going to drive there, if possible, go see where it's going to be so that you can imagine that. And then imagine yourself taking it calmly, regulated, all the tools you have. And that really is going to help with your retention. Because when we get overactivated, we forget, um, you know, fight or flight, our our blood goes to our muscles so that we can react. And it means away from our brain. We want as much blood in our brain so that we're doing our best thinking in that high stakes moment. Um, and the power of imagery, because again, people feel like, no, I have so much material to learn. I don't have enough time. Why am I going to spend time on this? Well, because our brains don't know the difference between what is real and what we think about. And so this is rehearsal to set yourself up for optimal performance. There's, um, and Adam, you'll appreciate this, there's a basketball study that I love that just illustrates it so nicely that they have, you know, three groups of participants. So one, you have your control group that has no intervention. Uh, you have your two experimental groups. So group two every day comes to a gym and shoots free throws for a half hour. Group three comes to a gym every day and they don't touch a basketball, but they imagine shooting free throws. So what it feels mm -hmm. like, you know, the visual, the, the swoosh, hearing that, all of that. So they retest after 30 days. And of course, they've done, you know, pre-test. The control group, there's no change. The group that's been shooting free throws has the biggest amount of change, biggest improvement. The imagery group, it's right behind. Wow. Yeah. I mean, almost equivalent in terms of their improvement. So the more you can imagine how you want to go into this, you're really going to help your memory retrieval. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and one last one is called positive priming. And also a lot of nice data behind this as far as its power, particularly with standardized tests is so often when we go into something like that, we're doing that last minute cramming, which we're overactivating ourselves. And so go into the test and I have people incorporate this into their imagery. You have a nice memory, a nice feeling already queued up. You're taking some deep breaths and you're going to that happy place. And so that's that moment where, you know, fight or flight, you literally have tunnel vision. You're not seeing all the possibilities. And so it gets you in this broadened space so you can really see the answers and then access what you know.
Well, I am going to continue my uh, recent trend of soliciting free advice from our guests, Jen. So uh, one thing I I really struggle with is uh, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. And then that leads to decision paralysis because, you know, you try and do everything and then you end up doing nothing. So what is what is some advice that you can give in in that regard? Because I feel it's something that a lot of our students run into of I got to study this and I got to study this and I got to study this. And then they get overwhelmed and just close their books and walk away. (laughs) Right. Oh, absolutely. And it is it is such a hard process. And so I think step one is to validate it. Um. Of course, you're feeling that way. How could you not? You know, and so that kind of starts to take the edge off of it right there, hopefully. And a really effective strategy that I've used with a lot of people, and I think in particular, um, and this is someone who was taking the CFP exam, and they had a one-year-old. And they just felt like they were missing out on so much. And they there were a number of things that they were missing out on because they needed to dedicate all this time. And at times, you know, it would just be like, why am I doing this? Yeah. I want to pack it up. I want to go to this other kid's birthday party, um, see my kid develop. And, you know, of course there are moments where they are seeing that. So it's not this all or nothing, but one of the most effective strategies for this person and for a lot of people is to consult your future self. Cause right present you is like, I'm done with this, Mm -hmm. but there's a reason that you're on this journey. There's a reason that you're putting in this blood, sweat, and tears. And so having that dialogue with yourself three years in the future, five years in the future, who can really help you get back in touch with your values and help you recognize, okay, this is pain with a purpose. Because when we're in that FOMO state, it's just pain. And we just want relief from the pain. But when we know it's pain with a purpose, that there is going to be a really positive outcome that's going to get me where I want to be in so many respects. And yes, I'm going to miss, you know, this birthday party or two. But ultimately, I'm going to be able to do this vacation with my kid. I'm going to have this time. And that's what I want. So it's going again from that tunnel vision to that what I call wide angle living, you know, really working to expand it so that you can see all the possibilities, which are much bigger than that one moment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Should have gone back and told, uh, you know, college, college, Jerry, that, uh, you know, I, I would have had uh, <laughs> some better results. <laughs> but that said, it's okay sometimes to indulge ourselves a little bit, but yes. you know, <laughs> As long as it's a choice uh, for the most part. And, you know, one of the strategies that is also really effective with that is it's something that's called wise mind. And what often happens when we're in that moment also is that we're vacillating between our emotional mind, which so often is at the wheel, even when we don't recognize it. And then maybe we go over to logical mind. Um, you know, but I really want to do this. Oh, I know I need to spend the time studying, but this would be so much fun. And it's that back and forth and we just burn ourselves out more. And so what this process is, is you really, you know, hard line, ideally you write it down. Okay. What is my emotional mind telling me? And you get it all out because it's there. There's no sense in denying it. Part of that validation process, but then logical mind. Okay. The exam is X number of weeks away. 
I chose to do this X, Y, Z, you know, what, what is the hard data telling you? And then the synthesis of those two pieces is your wise mind conclusion. And so it honors the emotional, but often gives you that guidance of what's really going to serve me best in this moment. And it just takes a piece of paper with a line down the middle, right? Yeah. You know, again, simple, but not easy. And, sure. you know, in those moments when we're really activated, um, it's hard to know the difference between the two. I can connect this uh, for our listeners out there, Jerry, to uh, Nathan's emotional wheel. I think the yeah. emotional wheel could provide some good descriptive words around the emotions that people can then jot down on their, their wise mind schematic. Definitely. Absolutely. I, I love the emotion wheel. I use it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come into our next podcast, Jerry, just warning you. And I'm going to put one of those little, little flicking, you know, <laughs> like spin the wheel flick type devices on there. I, I gotta, I gotta bring the fiance on. Cause actually last night I tried breaking out the emotion wheel with my fiance <laughs> and she, really? she stared daggers at me. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> like, okay, we're going to put the emotion wheel away for right now. Like, we'll let yeah. me try to describe what I appears that you're feeling right now. <laughs> yeah. It seems that you are annoyed. Let's go a little deeper. Let's get more granular. She's like, she's like, so are you not doing the dishes? So I then put the wheel away and did the dishes. <laughs> love it Mm -hmm. timing is everything and that that sounds like it might not have been the timing (laughs) not the right time not the right time (laughs) Uh, jen we we so value your time and all of this great knowledge for our our crew out there that that listens in um i have a couple more things that came to mind just uh knowing that you were going to be sharing your time and expertise with us um when you're learning something new, is there a, a better path to go down? Um, just taking existing proficiencies and strengths and spending time really elevating those or what what feels often the far more uncomfortable, um, grueling, uh, challenging, you know, let me work my my weaker areas to lift those up. Is there, is there a right approach there or are both correct? You know, generally what is most effective and certainly what I see is leveraging your strengths to address those areas that are unknown or weaknesses and operating from that place, you know, you get the boost from using your strengths. Um, but then you acquire that new skill set that you need to use. And I think strengths come in a lot of different ways. I think of one person I worked with, okay, and again, this was a former high-level athlete who had transitioned to another career and you know was very successful in it and had gotten a new position within the company. And he was diving all in on everything he didn't know. And we had the discussion where I was sort of like, whoa, 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 you know, let's operate from your strengths. And what I realized from talking about it with him is he was, he is a fiercely competitive person. And so diving into what he didn't know was this incredible competition for him of, okay, how can I learn this? How can I gamify it to an extent? Um, 
And so even though it initially looked like he was just diving in to the weakness area, he was actually leveraging his strengths to do it. And so strengths come in different ways that we might not necessarily recognize, as I was saying. And as I mentioned before, I really do think finding lower level areas to develop this skill set. So, you know, I'll use an example from my own life is about 10 years ago, because obviously I love sports um, and hockey is one of my favorite sports. But so I decided I'm going to go learn to play hockey. And no, I was not previously a skater, anything like that. It was just like, you know, I'm between physical therapy stints. I'm going to go for it. Um, and I, you know, I, I do not say this to disparage myself, but it's, I know my strengths. I know my not strengths. Um, in no way am I naturally athletically inclined or gifted. Um, you know, in high school, I play volleyball with my friends and they called me pretty ball because they said that I just looked at it like, oh, it's so pretty. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, sad to say it, it I, I actually think it's that bad, but I wanted to learn to play hockey. So I go out there, I'm learning to play. I end up getting invited in to play in a league um, and ultimately end up being invited to play with this private hockey club which meant I got more ice time. Now, mind you, when I got that invitation, I felt like a kid in middle school dance, kind of the, me? Did they send it to the wrong person? Um, but I realized as I'm reading the materials and they say, we choose people not based on skill, but sort of on companionship and character. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe they really did send it to me. Fortunately, they did. and the way that I developed my hockey game, which was still not good, um, but I build relationships and I connect with people. And I'm also really good at asking questions. I guess one would hope given my line of work, right? Um, and so I ended up finding people to sort of mentor and coach me. And so that's how I developed that. And it is now this area because it was, it was very anxiety producing. Um, but I now, when I have a higher stakes professional situation, I now go to, Hey, I learned how to play hockey. I can do anything and I can take this risk because look what I did out on the ice. And so I really encourage people to find those areas because they really then fuel our professional goals, then, you know, whatever sure. it is that we want our achievements. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That yeah. what immediately comes to mind for me are the people that go through the CFP process, they get their pass on the other side. And, um, I often ask what's next and, and I'm, I'm still hoping to hear one day, um, I'm going to Disney World, but uh, it's not, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but uh, often it's, well, I want to now go get this really difficult uh, designation in this other area because I feel so empowered by having gone through that process and, and being successful on the other side. And I'm sure this applies to kids in sports. I mean, I've seen that with my daughter and in, in basketball and her academics and social stuff is that. I feel really empowered. I, I learned how to do this thing. I, I scored a bucket in my, my game and I feel really confident 
in, in other areas suddenly. Um, yes. Yeah. I love it. Cause right. The, the feeling is the same and that recognition of it. Oh, it's just, it's so powerful. And it just opens up so many more possibilities and that sense of agency, which is just so important. Yeah. Um, it's a great place for us to, to wrap things up. But I, I, I had one last, just top of top of your mind. All okay. right. I hear all these stories. Again, I'm, I'm very interested in, in musicians and their, their habits and how they become who they are. And same thing with athletes. And, um, you, you'll often hear, you know, this person's so talented and, and I even see it with, with youth, youth sports, right? Like this person's going to be the next so-and-so. Um, but I feel like over time, you have these people that kind of sneak up that have just worked hard and been consistent and have made the right choices, right. That, that have that, that practice growth mindset. Um, and, and they're able to, to sometimes out, outpace and, you know, become even, even better than the person that just had the talent. Is there something to that? Does, does hard work have potential to beat out raw talent? Absolutely. I, that growth mindset piece that you mentioned and that you started with, I will take hard work any day over sort of the raw talent. Um, because yeah, when it is that hard work, we do develop that growth mindset and we know that what we achieve is a function of the work we put in versus sometimes when people start with that high talent, they develop that fixed mindset of, well, you know, when I meet with a threat, it's a threat to who I am because I'm naturally gifted at this. And if I'm suddenly not succeeding again, something is wrong with me versus back to that. The problem is the problem or the challenge is the challenge. And so that growth mindset, that hard work, people rise to that occasion. So hard work, hands down. And for those of us of a certain age or any, you know, I think even uh, peripheral football fans know who Peyton Manning is. My guess is most people don't remember Ryan Leaf unless they were fans at the time, yeah. um, who a lot of people thought was a lot more, had more raw talent than Peyton Manning, but didn't have that hard work and ended up burning out pretty quickly versus Manning, who certainly had the work ethic and had that really long, successful career. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example of that. Well, thank you, Jen. This has really been a joy to listen to. And and as I said, I, I think there's going to be a whole audience of people uh, that have found all these little knowledge and wisdom gems that you shared with us today that are going to help them as they move towards their exam. Uh, really appreciate you and your time and and for sharing all this great stuff with with our students and, and our listeners. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. And uh, if our listeners want to, you know, contact you, employ your your services, because I really highly recommend our students uh, who are struggling with test anxiety to really reach out uh, to professional and get some help. You know, how, how would they contact you and, you know, uh, see if they could work with you? You know, certainly um, LinkedIn, I guess, is, you know, the the way to do it these days. Um, so that is an option. Also, my website is just my name. Uh, Jennifer Serlin, PhD.com and reach me through email. I also actually work with a, a group out of Canada that uh, coaches and trains financial advisors, and that's called Advice to Advisors. 
And so that would be another way to reach me. But I, I really love helping people actualize what they know, because mm-hmm. that's really what the performance piece is, and to create an environment where they can learn and retain as much as they can. And so often those psychological factors just really get in the way of that process. And so this is about opening that up for that peak performance. And it's just such rewarding work and just wish all your students well and everyone taking that exam. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's great. Awesome. Uh, Well, thank you again so much for coming on. I definitely learned a lot. I hope our listeners did too. Uh, For all our listeners getting ready for the November exam, definitely take these lessons to heart. Uh, I'm sure we'll be reiterating it to you many times over the next couple of months. And if you have not signed up for a uh, review program yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Make sure you get on that so you can prepare for November. Uh, Biff Review is still taking signups. Until next week, we'll be signing off and we'll see you all then. Take care. See you soon. Mm